The following sermon, entitled Paul's Second Prayer for the Ephesians, 16th in the series on the book of Ephesians, the Blessed Church of Christ, was preached on the evening of April 17, 2022, at Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Redlands, California. If you enjoy listening to our sermons, we encourage you to come worship with us. For more information on upcoming service times and Bible study opportunities, please visit our website at hopeprc.org. Turn again tonight to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, we will read the whole of the chapter again. The text for this evening's sermons will be verses 14 through 19. I ask that you pay close attention to those verses as we will not reread them. Ephesians chapter 3. For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, For you Gentiles, if ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given me to you, how that by revelation He made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in few words, whereby when ye read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto His holy apostles, and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of His promise in Christ by the Gospel, whereof I was made a minister, according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of His power. Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God, according to the eternal purpose which He purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of Him. Wherefore I desire that ye faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. And now verses 14-19 through are the text. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with might by His Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto Him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us, unto Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. As far we read God's Word. One of the remarkable features of Paul's prison epistles is that he writes as one who evidently is on the mountaintop of faith. We're not going to take time to demonstrate that from the other prison epistles, but we could give example after example after example showing that at a time when we might expect the Apostle Paul to be filled with despair, instead he seems exuberant. When we might expect that his imprisonment would be 
the occasion for him to wallowing in self-pity. Instead, what we find is that he is full of faith and hope. And that same pattern holds true with this particular epistle to the Ephesians. For, remind you, Paul is writing this letter while he is under house arrest in Rome. But yet, this is perhaps one of the most exalted letters of all the inspired letters that the Apostle Paul wrote. For it's in this letter that the Apostle Paul is setting forth these glorious truths and he does so as one who was evidently filled with amazement at them. So that even as Paul writes, it's as though we can hear it in his voice that he himself has been meditating upon the unsearchable riches of Christ. It comes out in the way that he writes that his soul is thrilled with the glorious Gospel of the riches of God's grace toward us in Jesus Christ. And it's with that frame of mind that he cannot but pray as he does at the end of Ephesians chapter 3. Because this passage is indeed a prayer. He writes in verse 14, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's about to pray and what follows are a series of petitions. And this follows from everything that he's already said in the letter. You notice verse 14 begins, for this cause. And here he's picking up again the thought that he started back in verse 1. Verse 1 of the chapter, we read, For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles. And then we've seen in our series that verses 2-13 through were a sort of digression away from the main point. But now, Paul is coming back to that main point. He writes, For this cause. For what cause? In light of everything that's already been set forth, in light of the great blessedness that belongs to the church that is the body and the bride of Christ, Paul now prays. And his prayer, in essence, is that the saints to whom he is writing would be brought to that same mountaintop of faith. That they would be brought to the point where Paul was at from a spiritual point of view as one who was filled with wonder on account of these truths. And Paul expresses that prayer in three main petitions. That's the best way I believe to organize this, these verses and this prayer into three main petitions. And we do so especially in light of the way it's put together in the original Greek. It doesn't come out so much here, but in the original Greek, there are three instances of a specific word being used that indicates purpose. And I believe each one of these purpose clauses serves to build on the other so that they sort of work toward a climax so that the pattern of the prayer, the structure of this prayer, is that it's like three steps in a staircase or three different rungs upon a ladder, each one of us bringing us higher and higher and higher, which is to say closer and closer and closer to the overall goal that the Apostle Paul has in view. That we too might stand on that mountain type of faith or to put it the way it is expressed at the end, that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. Because that's where Paul was at. And that's his prayer for us. And this is a prayer we therefore make our own. That's the main application tonight is seeing how this prayer helps us establish our own priorities in our prayer lives as well as our lives from a more general point of view. We're to take this prayer and we are to make it our own. A prayer 
in which Paul prays for three things. So the theme for tonight's sermon is Paul's second prayer for the Ephesians. First, he prays that we might be strengthened. Second, he prays that we might know the love of Christ. And third, he prays that we might be filled. That is filled with the fullness of God. Before we get into the first main petition, Paul introduces his prayer by indicating both his posture in this prayer as well as the specific words of address that he uses in this prayer. First, he tells us his posture. Verse 14, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father. And when we read that, we have no reason to doubt that Paul very literally got down on his knees and prayed this inspired prayer. Whether immediately after writing it down, he set down the pen and prayed, or he prayed this prayer and then recorded it in this letter. But either way, the overall point of Paul bowing his knees is that this was an expression of reverence. Such a posture is a a posture of worship for God, of submission toward Him. And this is a reminder of the attitude we must have in our own prayers. Such reverence, such worship should be characteristic of how we pray in our day-to-day lives. And while getting on our knees is certainly not a requirement for prayer, it is conducive toward prayer. And that's worth bearing in mind. So first, his posture is that he bows his knees to God. Second, he tells us his address. And he addresses God as follows, as the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. The beginning of our series of sermons, we saw the significance of that phrase, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is addressing God as the one who has eternally determined to save us in and through Jesus Christ, the one who accomplishes our salvation. But now the Apostle Paul adds by inspiration, of whom, that is of the Father, the whole family in heaven and earth is named. And what this phrase speaks to is the truth that we are now the adopted sons and daughters of our God. That we belong to the family of God. And this is an extensive, a large family. He speaks of those the whole family in heaven and in earth. And he's talking about the church. The church triumphant. Those saints who are already in heaven as well as the church militant. The church that's still found here on this earth. And the point is we are all one family. We've all been united together. And you see how this relates back to what he's been talking about with the Jews and the Gentiles being reconciled unto God and thus made one with each other. We're now all one family. And this too has bearing on our prayer lives. Because it's a reminder that in our prayers we need to avoid becoming too individualistic in how we pray and what we pray for. Over against that, we need to recognize I'm a member of a broader family. The broader family of this congregation as well as the church universal. And our prayers, therefore, should include prayers for the entire family. For all those who are of this family in heaven and earth named after our Father. Now, having explained the posture, having explained the address, we want to look more specifically at the first main petition that's found in this prayer. And that first main petition is expressed in verses 16 and the first half of verse 17. Paul's first petition is this, that He, God, would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with might by His Spirit in the inner man that Christ may Dwell in your hearts by faith. And I believe these are really 
two parallel statements. The statement that we would be strengthened and the statement that Christ would dwell in us by faith. They're really two halves of the same petition. So that even though we're going to look at each one in turn, we recognize that both of them are expressing the same basic point. On the one hand, Paul prays that we would be strengthened. And the idea is that we'd be made strong from a spiritual point of view because his prayer is that God would grant us to be strengthened with might by His Spirit. That is the Spirit of Christ. He's the the agent, the one who gives us this strength, who gives us this might. He's talking about being spiritually strengthened. And that becomes all the more evident when he adds that we would be strengthened in the inner man. And whether that's a reference to that new man, that new principle of life, or whether it's a reference to the inner man in contrast to the outer man that is our heart, our mind, our soul, our will, our affections. Either way, the same truth is being expressed. This is a prayer that God would grant us spiritual strength. And this petition is not unrelated to everything that Paul has already written by inspiration. This petition is not coming out of left field. Because thus far in this epistle, Paul has set forth the unspeakable riches of God's grace towards us. He's set forth the fact that we are blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. And now, He follows that up with this petition. And the point, the idea is this. God use this epistle in order to strengthen this church. Use this letter as a means, as a means of grace. Let this be the effect that it has upon the church at Ephesus that they might be strengthened by means of this Word. And is that not our prayer? Is that not our prayer when we come to church to listen to the preaching? To partake of the sacrament such as the sacrament of the Lord's Supper as we did this morning? When we open our own Bibles in our own personal devotions, is not our prayer God use this to strengthen me by Thy Spirit in the inner man. It's an important prayer for us to pray. And it's important because in such a prayer, we are acknowledging that our spiritual strength is in fact a free gift from our God. Not something we merit, not something we earned, but a gracious gift. And that's an important reminder so that we do not fall into a wrong thinking that supposes, well, when it comes to regeneration, when it comes to conversion, when it comes to that initial work of grace, yes, that's all of grace. That's without any merit. But then when it comes to the strength whereby we live the Christian life, when it comes to persevering as saints, well, That's really found in me. Such a notion is an altogether heretical notion. And we need to be be on guard against that because that's exactly the view of many in the church that yes, God gets us started. That work is a, a gracious work without any merit of ours, but perseverance is really something we merit. Perseverance is really something that's done by our own strength. It's by my own strength that I live the Christian life. But that's an unbiblical view. And it's entirely contrary to this specific prayer. Because if it were true that this strength to live the Christian life, this strength to persevere was found in ourselves, this petition makes no sense. Why would Paul ever pray by inspiration, God grant them 
that they would be strengthened by the inner man. And you'll notice how he even words this prayer. The very wording is the proof that this strength is coming from God because the prayer is not simply that we be strengthened. But you notice the first half of verse 16. The first half of verse 16 is important. That God would grant you to be strengthened. That expression that God would grant this to you is indicating that this is a gift. And that's also evident from that phrase he puts in there, according to the riches of His glory in harmony with His grace toward us, His people. This is something we do not deserve that we would be given the strength. And so we pray for it. Beseeching God that in His grace, without any merit of ours, He would grant us this strength. So that's the petition, at least the one half of this first petition, that God would strengthen us by His Spirit in the inner man. Paul then restates that same petition with a sort of parallel statement at the beginning of verse 17. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. And now that admittedly is a interesting and difficult to understand petition. And it's difficult to understand because Paul is writing to those whom he has addressed at the very beginning of this epistle as saints who are faithful, that is, believers in Christ Jesus. He's addressing those who are already united to Christ. And yet now he prays here that Christ would dwell in their hearts by faith. How are we to understand this? How are we to make sense of this petition? Well, in this petition, there's important instruction for us concerning our union with Jesus Christ. And there's really two pieces of instruction that come out here in this petition. On the one hand, this petition that Christ would dwell in our hearts by faith instructs us that our union with Christ is something that grows. It's something that gets stronger. That's really the only way we can understand this petition. When Paul is praying for those already united to Christ, that Christ would dwell in them by faith, the idea has to be that He would dwell in them more and more. And that's actually implied in the specific language that's used here by inspiration. For you see, in the Greek language, there are two closely related verbs that both mean to dwell. And the Spirit very deliberately uses the stronger of those two words. And this word is the same word that is used in the Gospel accounts of demon possession, actually. Of an evil spirit dwelling within someone and exerting influence and governing that individual Well, here it's being used in the positive sense. That Christ by His Spirit would dwell in us. And the idea is that Christ by His Spirit would exert His influence upon us. That He would govern us more and more by His Spirit. So that what all of this is teaching us is that in a certain sense, our union with Christ is progressive. It grows. It gets stronger. As one theologian put it, quote, the indwelling of Christ is a thing of degrees. End quote. And this is in harmony with our own Heidelberg Catechism. In question and answer 76, which teaches us what it means to eat and to drink Christ in the Lord's Supper by faith. And a part of the explanation is this, that we become, quote, more and more united to His sacred body by the Holy Ghost, end quote. 
And it's in light of that that we see that what Paul is really praying here is that Christ would take possession of us more and more, that this union would be strengthened. That on the one hand is what this petition teaches us about our union with Christ. On the other hand, this petition also teaches us that as those who are united to Christ, the Spirit makes us active so that we then embrace Christ by faith. And that comes out in the specific wording. He says that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. And now obviously that cannot mean that by the activity of faith we establish this union. That would be heretical because our faith is itself something that flows to us on account of this union. But rather the idea is this. That when Christ by His Spirit regenerates us, establishes this bond, this union, and included in that, gives us the gift of faith and more, works in us the will to believe and the act of believing, well, we in turn become active. And by faith, we now lay hold of Christ. The One to whom we are united. And in embracing Him by faith, we now become conscious of that union. That union has already been established, but by faith, we now experience that union. We are able to draw close to our Savior. And now it's in light of this theology, these two things that come out here, that we understand what the Apostle Paul is praying in this petition. He's not praying that Christ would establish this union because that's already happened. But he's praying that Christ would dwell in them more and more. He's praying that by faith they would embrace Jesus Christ And again, this all ties back to everything He's already said, especially in the first two chapters. The Apostle Paul is praying that God would use this epistle for this very end. That God would use this to strengthen the faith of those to whom He is writing so that by faith they might embrace Christ all the more. And again, is that not our own prayer? As we attend to the means of grace, as we read God's Word, as we read this letter and go through it in the preaching, our prayer is that Christ would dwell in us by faith. But now all that is merely the first rung of the ladder, the first step. Paul builds on this now and he moves to the second main petition that we would know the love of Christ. And you see, the f- these two are related. The first petition really serves the second petition. The prayer is that we would be strengthened, that Christ would dwell in us by faith in order that we might be able to know the love of Christ exactly because it's the Spirit of Christ who enables us to have an ever-increasing knowledge and understanding of the love of Christ. But now before we can get at the petition itself, again, there's a part of this passage that we need to understand by way of making sure we go through all the different aspects of this verse. And that's what's expressed at the very end of verse 17. The main petition is verses 18 and 19, that we may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ. But before Paul states that, he says at the end of verse 17, that ye being rooted and grounded in love. And now it's worth admitting that there's considerable question and debate about this phrase, where it belongs and what exactly it's referring to. One of the questions is, 
does this phrase, being rooted and grounded in love, go with what's already preceded? Or does it belong with what follows? And it's not worth taking the time to get into all the technical reasons for why I believe it goes with what follows. There's a reason we're putting it in the second point. But you will notice that evidently the, King James, the translators of the King James Version agree this expression being rooted and grounded with, in love goes with what follows. Notice the punctuation in our King James Bibles. In our King James Version of the Bible. Verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Semicolon, that ye being rooted and grounded in love. And now here only a comma, and then it goes right into may be able to comprehend with all saints what is and then what follows. So the translators of the King James Version evidently also understood this is modifying the the second main petition. The other question that is debated is what love is being talked about here? We read, being rooted, grounded in love. Well, what love? Whose love? Is this the love that Christ has for us? Or, and this is the position of many, our love for Christ, and by extension, our love for the church as a whole, for this family that we are a part of. I believe it's the former that is talking about Christ's love for us. And there are two reasons for that. One is textual. Namely, that's what the Apostle Paul is going to go on to talk about. Verse 19, and to know the love of Christ. That is Christ's love for us. The other reason for understanding this is Christ's love for us is simply stepping back and looking at the broader picture. He's talking about being rooted and grounded in love. And is our love for Christ really something we can be rooted and grounded in? I'm uncomfortable with that. That's a part of the reason why, again, I say I believe this is talking about Christ's love for us. But that's really just addressing these questions that are part of the text. What is this talking about? What does this phrase mean? That's what we really need to talk about. The Apostle Paul writes that ye being rooted and grounded in love. And in writing this way, he's using two different figures, two different illustrations. One from agriculture. The second, from architecture. First, he speaks of being rooted in this love. And the figure there is that of a plant. A plant that sinks its roots down into the soil. And sinks those roots ever more deeply into the soil. So that it becomes more and more entrenched in that position and is able to draw up nutrients from the soil. The other figure is that of a building, an architectural figure being founded upon this love. And the idea is that Christ's love is the, the firm foundation upon which everything else follows. And the idea, what both of the, these illustrations have in common is that a plant that's rooted, a, a building that's grounded, that's founded on something is something that's not going to be easily moved. To be rooted and grounded in the love of Christ is to be established in the love of Christ. So that we're able to stand in the day of adversity. So that we are not moved in the midst of trouble. That's the idea. And now this follows from what has already been said in that when by God's grace we are strengthened by the Spirit in the man, inner man, when Christ dwells on us more and more, the result is we are going to be established, rooted and grounded in Christ's love. And when we are rooted and grounded in Christ's love, then what follows can be true as well. We then begin to comprehend, to know, 
something of the matchless love of Christ because that ultimately is the petition. And indeed, Christ's love is truly matchless. There's nothing like it in all the world. And that's what the Spirit would have us to learn from this description of Christ's love in verses 18 and 19. Paul writes by inspiration in verse 18 that we may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height. And the idea is of the love of Christ. This is a four-dimensional love. And it does not take too much imagination to give a little bit of content to each of these dimensions. Christ's love is of such a breadth that it's able to encompass the whole world so that this family that the Apostle Paul writes about and mentions in verse 15 is a family made up of saints from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And this love of Christ is of great length so that it stretches throughout all of the time and really it will last throughout all of eternity. It's a love of great depth in that it's a love that reaches down and plucks wretched sinners out of their sin and misery, out of the ruin that they had plunged themselves into. And exactly because it extends to such depths, it's a love that no one can fully fathom. And it's a love of great heights because it raises us up into heavenly heights. It raises us up beyond the reach of our enemy. That's the love of Christ. But though we can give some content to these different dimensions, that's not the main point. The main point when the Apostle Paul speaks of the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of this love is to teach us that we will never be able fully to comprehend this love. Even when we've been in heaven for 10,000 years, we will not be able to say, now I finally know everything there is to know about this love. And that same idea is expressed in how the Spirit speaks of the love in verse 19. And to know the love of Christ, which love passeth knowledge. It, It surpasses knowledge. It exceeds knowledge. This is something we cannot fully wrap our minds around. For who can comprehend a love that would lead our Savior to leave His place in glory and to come down into this fallen and sin-cursed world? Who can comprehend a love that would make Him willing to become our sin-bearer, the scapegoat for His elect people? Who can comprehend a love that made Him willing to endure all the mockery and reproach, all of the humiliation and suffering? And who can comprehend a love that would make our Savior willing to be given over into the hands of His enemies. To suffer injustice before a judge. To be beaten. To be spit upon. And ultimately to be crucified. And who can comprehend a love that made Him willing to endure the wrath of God for our sin. And what makes it even more amazing, this love, is that it's a love for you and me. For wretched, despicable sinners. What makes this love something we cannot comprehend 
is that Christ loved us while we were yet sinners. That He died for the ungodly. That He reconciled us while we were His enemies. It is a love that passes knowledge. And yet, what does Paul pray? That we might comprehend this love. Verse 18, that ye may be able to comprehend, that is, to grasp, to lay hold of this love. And then he adds in verse 19, to know the love of Christ, not just with an intellectual head knowledge, but with a a knowledge of the heart, a knowledge of experience. And now do not miss the intentional paradox here. What is Paul praying? That we would know an unknowable love. That we would comprehend the incomprehensible. That we would understand something that is beyond our ability to fathom. Why then does Paul pray it? How could we ever know the unknowable? Well, where did he begin? What was the first rung of the ladder? What was the first step in the staircase that we would be strengthened? That Christ would dwell in us more and more And for this purpose, in order that we might begin to understand this love, that we might begin to truly appreciate it. We'll never fully understand it, but the prayer is that we would make this beginning. And when we have this beginning of an understanding of the length, the breadth, the height, the depth of this love, then we're led to see all the more then we're led to realize this is truly something I'll I'll never fully comprehend. But knowing what little I know now, I want to know more. Let this be my meditation day and night. Let this be what I'm thinking about when I wake up and when I go to bed. The matchless love of Christ. That's Paul's petition. And he makes this petition on behalf of the church at Ephesus. And we make this petition our own. Exactly because it's when we comprehend something of this love that we too will find ourselves on the mountaintop of faith. That we too will have our hearts bursting with love that is a response to His love for us. Which is to say, we will be filled with the fullness of God. And that brings us then to the third main petition that's expressed here in this prayer. The end of verse 19. That ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. And that's quite the expression. Filled with the fullness of God. And in order to understand it, we need help from a parallel passage such as Colossians 2, verses 9 and 10. Colossians 2, verses 9 and 10, we read this, For in Him, that is, in Jesus Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of God of the Godhead bodily, And ye are complete in Him that is in Christ. So in light of Colossians 2, verses 9 and 10, when we read in Ephesians 3, verse 19, the Apostle Paul praying that we would be filled with the fullness of God, the idea is not that we would be filled up with the very essence of God, but that the fullness of God, that which fills God up, that which completes God, that ultimately dwells in Christ according to Colossians 2, verse 9. And now Christ dwells in us. And therefore, we are filled with the fullness of God. That's the idea. And what the Apostle Paul is ultimately talking about here is us being brought to perfection. 
As John Calvin stated very succinctly in his commentary, quote, Paul now expresses in one word what he meant by the various dimensions. He who has Christ has everything necessary for being made perfect in God. End quote. He who has Christ has everything necessary for being made perfect in God. He who has Christ is filled with the fullness of God Himself. And that's the Apostle Paul's prayer. That the Spirit would strengthen us, that Christ would dwell in our hearts, in order that we might comprehend the love of Christ, in order that we might be filled with the fullness of God, that we might be brought to that state of perfection. And though that perfection is ultimately something that awaits us in the life to come, when Christ comes again, nevertheless, we have a beginning of it already now because we have Christ dwelling in our hearts already now. And because that's true, we can be full. We can be complete in the sense of satisfied, content, joyful, happy, no matter what's going on in our lives. And does that not explain why the Apostle Paul writes his prison letters the way he does? This man is in prison. And at a time when we would expect him to be wallowing in self-pity, at a time we would expect him to be despondent and full of despair, he's exuberant. He's on the, the mountaintop of faith. Why? How? Because Christ by His Spirit had strengthened Paul. Christ was dwelling in him more and more, and therefore Paul was able to understand something, a beginning of the incomprehensible love of Christ. And now his prayer is that we would be brought to that same point. And I trust you recognize the, the value of this, the profit of this, the importance of this. Because when we're strengthened in this way, when our hearts are fixed on this love of Christ, when we're filled with the fullness of God, at least in principle, everything else from a spiritual point of view falls into place. It's when our hearts are fixed on the love of Christ that like Paul, we can endure the trials that come upon us. So that though the circumstances of life are in fact difficult. Agonizingly so. Yet we see this is Christ's love for me. This is God's will for my life. And it's when we comprehend the love of Christ that we then want to live the Christian life. Because remember, that's what's coming. In the rest of the book, we're almost to the end of the first half, the doctrinal section of the book of Ephesians. What comes in chapter 4, verse 1? Well, Paul says, I beseech you therefore that ye walk worthy of your vocation. He's going to begin with the exhortations and the callings. And what's going to motivate us? What's going to drive us to live according to that instruction? It's the knowledge of the love of Christ. And it's the strength that comes from His Spirit that enables us to live in that way. It's knowing the love of Christ that makes us ready and willing to say no to sin. It's knowing the matchless love of Christ that we turn away from those idols that otherwise fill up our heart because we know that His loving kindness is better than life, better than anything this life has to offer. It's knowing the love of Christ that fuels our worship so that we come here saying, blessed be 
This God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's knowing the love of Christ that enables us to to trust Him when we're tempted to doubt. To be confident in His will and His way. And to hope in the prospect of life eternal of truly being filled with the fullness of God. And so will you make this prayer your own? You understand what it means now. You can pray it with understanding. So make it your own. And in that connection, attend to the means of grace that God will use to bring about this prayer. Because Paul did not merely pray this. He prayed this in connection with the letter that he wrote. He's praying for God's blessing upon the means of grace. And that ultimately is our prayer too. So may God hear this prayer for Jesus' sake. And He will exactly because all of our prayers are based on the blood of Christ and the saving work of the One who so loved us, He was willing to die for us. Amen. Father in Heaven, guided by Thy Word, we pray, strengthen us by Thy Spirit. And so work in us that we are able to comprehend something of the length, the breadth, the height, and the depth of the matchless love of Christ. And thereby fill us with Thy fullness until at last Thy saving work is completed and we are brought to perfection. Bless this Word to our hearts and be with us in this night. Forgive us of our sins and hear this prayer for Christ's sake. Amen.